This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 to 1. You can listen on your radio or your smartphone or your smart speaker or anything that's smart. Just be very smart and listen to the show. Uh, right, coming up on today's episode, a really fascinating chat with Anthony Lloyd, the Times war correspondent. We cover everything from what it was like when he was kidnapped in Syria. Does he have any regrets about finding Shamima Begum? And what does a war reporter keep in his bag? And as an extended interview, this there's more on the podcast than you get on the radio show so there's bonus content uh, but first let's have a kick off with our columnist panel it's Monday so it must be Libby Rachie it's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester uh, let's start with Scotland uh, and uh, the imminent publication of uh, the report in uh, the inquiry into whether or not Nicola Sturgeon misled the Scottish Parliament um, if she's found to have knowingly misled Parliament, in theory, she'll be expected to resign. But I was quite struck, our colleague Alex Massey, uh, writing in The Times today, uh, pointing out that if Boris Johnson were a better chess player, as he put it, he would have sacked Priti Patel uh, when she was found to have broken the ministerial code last year because it would have slightly strengthened his hand to call for her to go, for, call for Nicola Sturgeon to go this year. And I suppose that's sort of the thing, isn't it? If you want the rules to apply to your enemies, you sort of have to abide by them yourself as well, Libby. Uh, this, this is sort of where I, I, I sort of out my, tear off my false whiskers and out myself as not belonging to the political wonks club. Because to <laughs> outsiders, the whole thing looks like a sort of vicious, weird, possibly psychosexual row, the salmon sturgeon. And it's incomprehensible if you think that a politician's main job is to improve public policy for ordinary people, education, health, public health, and not to gnaw each other's ears off in public. Um, I'm not surprised that support for Scottish independence seems to be getting lower there. I'm really sad about this because my upright public servant Scottish father would turn in his grave at all this. But it just fills me with absolute horror and I I almost don't care anymore. Uh, It it feels like non-politics to me. What do you think, uh, Rachel? I mean, Libby's sort of got a point, but then given that, um, <laughs> given that the SNP's government uh, hasn't done very much on all those issues that she was talking about and it's been completely consumed by constitutional matters, it's probably not a surprise that the whole thing's turned into a sort of SNP soap opera. Well, I think it's really fascinating is how often politicians sort of are willing to sacrifice their big overriding aim for the sake of some kind of effectively petty rivalry. So... Basically, Salmond and Sturgeon are risking their dream of independence on this internal feud between themselves. And it sort of reminds me of Blair and Brown. You look back at those kind of arguments with those TBGBs and the bitterness of the feud between Downing Street and the, and the Treasury in the new Labour years. And it was the narcissism of small differences, really. And it feels a little bit like that with this, that that sense of... Um, actually, you know, the, sort of you have one thing you really want to achieve, which is independence, and you're putting it at risk. Uh, I think it's really fascinating how, in a way, narcissistic politicians so often are. 
<laughs> it's interesting. You're you're so slightly surprised by that, Rachel. That well, I know politicians but... might be slightly narcissistic. <laughs> um, Libby, do you think that ultimately is is it because this 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 saga or the affair, whatever you call it, between um, Nicholas Sturgeon and Alex Hammond is so complicated? The chances are it won't end up having a huge impact on uh, um, public opinion. I, I think the impact it will have will be a distrust among a lot of, of sensible Scottish people who otherwise might have voted for independence and thought, yes, you know, let's have an independent country, let's be run by our own people, to wit the NS, the SNP. Uh, I, I think it will it will frighten people off independence. I mean, they're, they're genuinely damaging the thing which, as Rachel says, they are supposed most to care about. Uh, and it's it's baffling and it's depressing. And um, I, I think I think the Indy Ref 2 is almost doomed by what they are doing. Oh, that's interesting. You, uh, uh, do you think that uh, how does she need a full, a full majority just to emerge as the biggest party to push for um, uh, another independence referendum, or, or the impact of this row, this saga, might be that the Nicola Sturgeon is slightly forced to focus on actual things in Scotland, the schools and the hospitals that you were discussing. I think well, she's out. Oh, sorry. I think she's out, isn't she? Well, you think she might have to go? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I sort of think that in this age of uh, the, the, of no shame, that I suspect I sort of predicted she would just uh, press on. What do you think, Rachel? Do you think she would? She's likely to resign. Um, I don't know. I think it depends on what this James Hamilton report says, doesn't it? I think um, I think there is a high chance of brazening it out, given the pretty Patel situation, as Alex Massey says. Um, but I, I think she can get away with the. Um, committee report even if that does criticize her because she can say that's opposition politicians uh, uh you know rather than an objective um ruling but if the james hamilton report which is independent does conclude very strongly against her that would be tricky for her uh but i mean i think it all depends on the language and the extent of the thing and i'm sure she'll do all she can to brazen it out yeah, the day, I mean, it's one of the few times I've sort of leapt to David Cameron's uh, defence. At least when he lost the referendum, he did resign. And ever since then, you know, people just sort of hang on, hang on regardless and just sort of try and brazen it out, whether that's, you know, Pretty Patel or Gavin Williamson or, or, or whoever it might be. Uh, let's move on, because I really want to talk about your column today, Libby, um, because uh, you come out in defence of townies moving to the countryside, but even in your own column you talk about how you've got to sort of take cover because uh, you're aware that this might not be a, a universally popular position. Explain why um, more people moving out of towns and cities to the countryside might be a good thing. Well, it, it, I, I do well to take cover, I have to say, glancing up the, uh, below the line this morning. It's, it's very <laughs> rare for me to thoroughly dislike so very many of the commenters. Um, <laughs> or, 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 I, or, I or valued subscribers, readers. of course, yeah. They're, they're fabulous. We, we, we love them all. But there's quite a lot of sort of mad, mad snobbish things. Say, you just want to herd all the proles onto the bus and so on. You, you're a townie. You've never lived in the country. I said, oh, for 40 years I've lived in rural Suffolk. But no, they, all I'm saying here is if if this thing is real, that more people will work from home and therefore commute maybe two days a week uh, at most, and therefore there will be an exodus from the town to the countryside, that might ginger up because there'll be real families moving real time if it happens. And as I say, no one's sure. But if it happens, there'll be real families moving there who will therefore be more willing to campaign for stuff like decent shops and surgeries and local facilities. And above all, in this particular piece, buses, you know, bus services, which uh, Boris Johnson is crazy mad on and really intends to try and ginger up nationwide. And more rural bus services would be a boon for everybody. And people say, oh, they'll just go around in their Range Rovers. No, they won't. Not once their kids are 15 years old and desperate to get into town and they don't want to have to drive them everywhere and pick them up everywhere. The, the, the point about buses is that they, they serve the old and the young and the poor and the drunk and the, um, and, and the you know, the, the teenagers, the people without driving licenses, the banned from driving. You know, it, it is, if you have a good bus service, you can actually rely on, even if
even if it's only once every half hour or so. You know, it's an enormous boon. And I just wanted to observe that there might be some useful people campaigning for this, you know, who've come, you know, sharp elbow people out of the cities. But everybody hates me now, so, so that's <laughs> it, I'm afraid. Um, it's, it's goodbye, cruel world. We, we don't. We don't. We still love you, Libby. Um, uh, Rachel, what, growing up in Somerset, what I wouldn't have given for a bus every half an hour, it was... <laughs> Um, uh, it was a, it was a fifteen twenty minute bike ride to the bus stop, leaving my bike in the hedge. The risk this does sound like a sort of Monty Python uh, grew up in a cardboard box sketch. Um, but uh, but you know, in terms of you know getting to Taunton, going to college, hanging out with my mates, you know, the buses are really important. Boris Johnson is tapping into something there, and, and slightly sneery London types laughing about the obsession with buses slightly missed the point, I think. I think that's right. I'm afraid to say I'm a total townie. I've always pretty much lived in London, so I'm not. But and in London, if you if you get on a bus, you're just stuck in gridlock traffic at the moment. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of frustrating thing. But I can see that that's very different in the countryside. What I think is fascinating, which um, Libby you referred to in your column, is the way the sort of the sort of Disney version of the countryside that some people who move out from the town want. So they want the sort of they're complaining that there aren't enough taxis. Uh, you know, they want all the benefits of the city as well as the benefits of the countryside and the beauty of the rural um, area. And they don't like tractors and messy farms and things, which is the reality of the countryside. So buses are about turning it into something real. I think you're absolutely right about that. Mm. And it's not a sort of Disney you know, um, fairy tale fantasy of rural Lidl. It's nearly always the Cotswolds, isn't it? Uh, This particular (laughs) one that we've all been mocking the past week is the Cotswolds. And yet, entertainingly, one of of the people below the line who hate me um, uh, says that, uh, oh, the English countryside is actually simply ghastly and awful and flat and dreadful, though, of course, there are exceptions like the Cotswolds. You bang to rights, mate. (laughs) You think you're going to be hanging out with Matthew Freud and... And newspaper editors. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, yeah, it's, it, it, there are large parts of the, of the English or the British countryside which are not like the Cotswolds, um, or, or indeed that part of Somerset where George Osborne, Mariella Fostrop, and all the cool kids hang out. Um, <laughs> but actually, I mean, I, and I remember, and I think this is probably even got worse, but when I, I covered uh, particularly Devon in Cornwall, um, work for the Western Morning News, it was a massive problem. The number, the sort of percentage of homes taken up by second homes, which don't just mean that the sort of the village shop becomes unviable because mm. for half the year there's nobody there. But, you know, the schools, the buses, all of those things. And so, yeah. uh, Libby, you're, um, as ever, trying to look on the positive. But if more people move p- more permanently uh, to these places, suddenly the, you, you, you breathe life back into these, these uh, villages, which have, you know, basically spent half the year sort of completely shut up. They're like, sort of like a theme park. Like you said, they open it open in the summer when everyone comes down in their Land Rovers. But for the, the winter weekdays, uh, they're all shut up. Yeah, it's true. I mean, down here, one of the great joys, of course, has been some of the people who simply locked down for the entire year, the second homers, and they're fantastically active. Uh, loads of people have been, I mean, our villagers just made enormous sums of money for comic relief by everybody simply being here. Uh, but no, I think it's, a, it's an interesting thought. But as I say, there's so much weird hostility and snobbery around all sorts of things to do with the countryside that, that one does better to keep one's head down. <laughs> My general experience is um, uh, that I say this as a, as a country dweller. Uh, everyone in the countryside hates the people who come, but also wants them to come to spend their money. And that those two positions are two positions that can be held uh, at the same time. Now, Libby, before I let you go, I want to talk about nightclubs. We did a big thing on the show last week uh, talking about nightclubs uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, the prospect of nightclubs coming back. Uh, when they're allowed to reopen after 12 months, more than 12 months it will be, of being shut. But you had a great nightclub story that I, w- I hoped that you would share with the nation. Yes, yes, I'm not a nightclub person, I have to say. I, I don't, I'm not very good in big, big noisy crowds, and, and uh, I never was, even when much younger. Uh, but when I was a teenager, of course, my dad was posted to Hamburg, and here you have the Reeperbahn you know, the, the great sort of uh, whole road for them. Of course, as a teenager with my brother Mike, uh, you know, well, sort of 15, 16, uh, you know, it was well, maybe 17 by the end of it. We used to be allowed to go out for a creep on the reap, as it was known, uh, provided that the Navy was in. 
if the Royal Navy was in, they would have come to a cocktail party at the Consulate, Consulate General, my dad was Consul General, and the, therefore the Naval Patrol would be out on the streets keeping the sailors safe, and they would have had a look at us, and they would know who we were, and my dad would feel that maybe the Naval Patrol would save us. But the most popular thing was the Zillatal, the enormous nightclub at the end, where the furniture was actually knocked down. You know, all the, the legs came off the chairs and tables, and so the sailors could basically think, oh yeah, we really trashed a club last night, hey, you know, you should dance on the table, they'll pull the legs off, threw the legs around and chucked them about. And in the early morning, about sort of four o'clock when everything eased down a bit, you'd see these um, uh, ladies who, who were the staff kind of popping out to stick the furniture back together again. <laughs> so it was all neat, neat and tidy for the morning. Uh, it was basically a kind of a theme park, you know, for people to think they were being so wild, <laughs> wild and free and dangerous. And actually they, they were being humoured by these uh, nice German ladies popping the furniture back together. So that, that's my happiest nightclub moment. That's my only nightclub. Uh, that is a, it's, a great, it's a great story. Uh, Rachel, are you a big, a big clubber? Funnily enough, I'm not. Not for many, many years, if ever, actually. So it's the one thing I really haven't missed and don't can't think of anything worse than going to a nightclub. I'm really sorry. That's so boring. No, but... it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> you just won't be coming on the, on the Times Radio <laughs> night out. Works party. <laughs> That's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester, and of course you can read them both in The Times. You just need to get yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, my chat with Anthony Lloyd, The Times war correspondent. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, here is my chat with Anthony Lloyd. He's been a war correspondent for something like 27 years. He's won lots of awards for doing it. Frankly, rather him than me. Like I said, some ext- like I said, some bonus uh, content coming up because uh, the chat, what was supposed to be a twenty-minute chat, ended up running on for almost twice that length. So uh, this is an absolutely fascinating chat with uh, Anthony Lloyd. And I began by asking him, where is he in the world? I'm in northern Iraq at the moment. I got here last night, and I'll probably be in Iraq for about. 10 days, two weeks before heading back to the UK. I'm following up on on some specific things here that I'm really interested in. So that'll be me for the next two weeks. And what is Iraq like now as a place to go into as a journalist? Anyone, you know, when you're when you're flying into Iraq, what, what, what sort of country greets you? Well, it slightly depends on which area you go to, but uh, it's safe to say that wherever you fly into, whether it's Baghdad or in this case, Erbil, is going to be relatively stable. And in Erbil's case, it's a city I know very well up in the north. So I feel uh, it's a very familiar place to me to start work. Uh, Much of Iraq is entirely benign and easy to travel through. With all of these things, much of your um, obstacle is due to bureaucracy rather than risk. There are, you know, as a journalist, particularly in the Middle East, you need a lot of paperwork, a lot of permission to go from A to B, particularly in the time of pandemic, where there are all sorts of local restrictions which change. Some cities are in curfew, some aren't. You can drive to some places, you can't to others. Then there are also areas where it'd be pretty ill-advised to go 
as a journalist because they're deeply affected by insurgency or because you might bump into one or other Iranian-backed group who, who might not give you um, that good a time either. Uh, and those are areas which you can still work. You just have to mitigate for the risk and, and take things, uh, work in a bit of a different way, should I say. Before we get into the specifics of different places you've been and different stories you've covered, I want to sort of, I want to get to the bottom of, of why someone becomes a war correspondent. As someone who's always wanted to be a journalist from the age of six or seven, I wanted to be a journalist. The idea of, I mean, to me, in my mind, that was always probably sitting behind a desk, going out and seeing some people. But, you know, essentially within the warm confines of, of an office, uh, um, what you do couldn't be more different to what I do. When did you know you wanted to be a war correspondent and how, how did it happen for you? I knew I wanted to be a war correspondent in my mid to late teens. And that was an appetite which came around really just for, through a, a confluence of, of drives um, I was very interested in travel. I was very interested in seeing the world. Um, and I liked excitement. I liked change. Things that were happening in the world really interested me. I was interested in reading the papers, seeing the news when I was, was young. But I was also really interested in war. All the males in my family for generations back had either been airmen or soldiers. And it seemed that war was some sort of rite of passage in a way. So um, I dutifully joined the army when I was 18 and served for five years and left um, slightly bored with the whole experience. This was, you know, tail end of the, the Cold War, Gulf War One, and such like Northern Ireland. It was, it was a slightly boring time to have served five years in, in the army. Uh, and, but I always knew that I wanted to try to be a war correspondent. Yugoslavia was falling apart as I left the army, the start of a new era of conflict. Uh, and so all that led me to be a war correspondent, which I, I guess is what I am. <laughs> well, you, I mean, you, you definitely are. But it particularly began with, with photographs before the writing, is that right? Yeah, that's right. After I left the army, I studied photojournalism in the London College of Printing in Elephant Castle. And um, I love photography. I'm fascinated with photographs. Uh, and the power of the photograph too. And when I first went to Bosnia, which was 1993, I hitchhiked to Bosnia to see, you know, if I could get a break as a photojournalist there. And it was pho photography, which I started with. And, and initially I was a freelance photographer and um, sold photographs on a very haphazard basis to the wires, to Reuters and AP. Um, I later got a break as a writer and it just so happened that I was better at writing than taking photographs. Although <laughs> if the world was mine to make, I would be a, I'd be a war photographer. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about the, 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 fo uh, the photos rather than the writing that you prefer? If a photograph goes right, it captures an instant far better than a thousand words can do. Um, it's, you know, both sides have their shortfalls. Um, it's very easy it's very hard to take a really good photograph and capture the moment correctly, just as it can be really hard to, 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 to write very well about a specific incident. But it's something about the power of a photograph. It sits there on a page or on a wall or on a computer and, and, and it's there as long as you look at it. And if it's a powerful photograph, that is an unchanging moment of, of power that that picture has over you. It's a very interesting relationship in, 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 in between picture and beholder. And when it's representing a moment, particularly a moment in war, that carries an inordinate amount of power with it, far more than I would suggest as text, where you can always say, well, hang on, that is the writer's perspective of a situation. That's also true with a photographer, but there's far less filters in it. When you look at an image, uh, it's a much more direct short circuit to that scene than through to the same scene through writing a piece, if you see what I mean. So we're talking uh, specifics of, of different conflicts you've been into, but what, what's your kit look like? What's your what sort of bag do you have? What do you always have with you? Because I, I assume that, you know, in particularly dangerous situations, being able to travel pretty light and pretty quick is is key. But what do you always have with you? Matt, I never, I was never any good at traveling light and I've got even worse. I've got older, you know what I mean? This kind of loose image of a, of a, yeah, mobile, mobile guy who just got one bag by the door with his passport and a spare, spare pair of clothes and a sat phone and a flak jacket. No, I have, uh, I do have a bag like that, but I also, uh, carry usually a very big bag with loads of gear, most of it unnecessarily. Um, 
the comms, the whole comms thing has developed hugely in the last, oh, I've been doing it 27 years now. So when I started, I didn't even have a sat phone, let alone a mobile phone. The internet was barely in existence at the time. Um, and I had a flak jacket and my cameras, my two manual Nikon uh, FE2s. And um, but now that's all different. So now, of course, you know, I've got I have to get the right laptop. I haven't, I haven't quite got the right laptop at the moment, but I've got I've got a sat phone, which is Thraya handheld sat phone in case I'm working somewhere where there's no mobile phone links. Then I've got two uh, different types of mobile phone, one on a local network, one on uh, on another network. Um, I've got two tracking options. So I've got a satellite tracker so people, if they need to, can see where I am. Then I've got an inbuilt uh, app which tracks my movements as well on top of the, the normal ability to track a phone's movement. So there's, you know, a, a three-dimensional perspective of, of where I am. I've got my flat jacket, I've got my helmet, I've got my first aid kit, I've got my field dressings, I've got my tourniquets, I've got this, that and the other, my C-Pro, uh, in case I get sick, uh, you know, and, and all the rest of it. But what I try and do in every war is get somewhere as a base and just drop 90% of that. You know, so when I'm actually going out working, it's uh, I'll be in a car with one or two local guys, and I will have my passport in my pocket um, and a small bag, and blend, which will have a notebook in it, maybe maybe a small camera. I try and actually in the field work as as lightly as possible. But but the kit I carry to get there is is you wouldn't believe it if you saw the the swag I carry. Oh, I feel quite reassured now with my my ability to overpack for every eventuality. So I don't feel so. Oh man, if I if I, <laughs> if I don't have ten pairs of clean knickers for a week long assignment, uh, I'm not there. <laughs> okay, well, let, um, in fact, one of the reasons I, I wanted, specifically wanted to speak to you is about a piece that you wrote uh, earlier this month, um, particularly about what had happened in in Syria, uh, because this month marks ten years since the Syrian civil war uh, began. Um, now, normally, you know, normally in wars, in books or films, there are two sides. There are goodies and baddies, and it's easy to follow who's winning and losing. And even, you know, our, you know, whether it's Dad's army arrows going across Europe, whatever it might be. That part of the problem with the, the conflict in Syria is it's so there are so many factions all pitted against each other in this sort of churning war without end. Can you try and explain, if you possibly can, uh, for listeners, how it began? And, and where Syria is now. Sure. I'm going to give you a very condensed version of this map. It began 10 years ago. You started getting protests in actually March the 15th, 10 years ago. You got protests in two major cities, Damascus and Aleppo. Those protests were against unemployment predominantly. Uh, a weakening economy. And they were also against repressive laws and repressive police behaviour and a repressive regime. But they were primarily driven by economic factors at the beginning. And also, as protesters looked out to, you know, the whole energy of the Arab Spring, they wanted to change a change of life. Very quickly, due to the way that those protests were were, were put down or, or, or that the, the way that the army and police were used against those protesters very violently with live ammunition um, and thousands of people arrested right from the get-go and thrown in prison and tortured. It's fair to say that torture is absolutely de rigueur as part of the arrest experience in, in Syria. It's not something that happens to you sometimes. If you're arrested, particularly in a protest, you're very likely to be tortured. That fanned the flames. And within weeks, certainly within a couple of months, those unarmed protests turned into often armed protests, which developed quickly into an insurgency, which developed quickly into an uprising, which transformed then into a civil war. So what began 10 years ago is very much a Syrian internal affair, has since exploded across the whole country, at ruination, uh, sorry, at the expense of ruination of the country, at the expense of probably 500,000 people dead in 10 years, which is a phenomenal amount of people. And those figures are slightly disputed. But, for example, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which is a very good documentary body, recorded as of December last year that 387,000 
uh, and 118 people had been killed. That was according to its, its, its respected documentation processes. Now, those figures didn't include the 205,000 that are missing or the, the 100, uh, sorry, the 205,000 that are missing. So we've got about 500,000 people dead or missing. Uh, also, the conflict has spread out to include like, how many people are, are involved in, in, in Syria now? There's at least 16 different international actors who have invo been involved either with troops on the ground at some stage or with airstrikes. You know, it's become a, a Syrian war has gone into also a regional conflict. It's gone into a proxy conflict and has had huge repercussions, not just in the Middle East, but all the way into Europe. You can say to an extent the Syrian civil war has turned into a war that's affected the politics of Europe. I mean, people remember very early on in the conflict the uh, the political impact right here in the UK when there was a hotly debated question of what uh, response Britain should take to the use of chemical weapons, which, I mean, that just feels like such a phenomenal time ago and, and everything that British politics has been through since then and the whole time that conflict has still been unfolding. Absolutely. Now... Our perspective or public perspective, should I say, of, of what's been happening in Syria is quite confused because you've got a whole lot of very bad actors in, in public, in the public side. You've got President Assad who gasses his own people and use, has used chemical weapons on a very regular basis against the Syrian people. Then you've had groups like Islamic State as well who have had a, been a, a, a had a tangible, sorry, who, then you get groups like Islamic State as well, who have been a defined threat to Western values and have conducted multiple attacks in the West as well, and who are you know, well, known across the world for their atrocity and for their bar barbarity. Then you've got a whole lot of Islamist groups as well, no friends of the West, who are indulging in their own fight with the regime, whereas the, the majority have either been, uh, sorry, the, the more liberal majority, have either been silenced or driven out. So you've got a lot of very unattractive belligerent actors inside Syria. But I mean, certainly one of the key moments, the war's had a number of key moments. One of them was the British parliamentary vote against responding to chemical attack in Ghouta in 2013, which killed hundreds, perhaps over a thousand people uh, using a nerve, nerve agent. Now that attack has been absolutely proven to have been conducted by the forces of the regime of, of President Assad, that parliamentary vote was a key moment. It came ahead of American decision on whether to uh, intervene in Syria in retaliation for those chemical attacks or not. And when President Obama, who had originally issued a red line warning to the Syrian regime saying if you used chemical weapons, it would affect his calculus of response. He was considering response when he saw the British Parliament voting against responding armed intervention, punitive intervention against Assad. Then he also chose not to intervene. To some extent, the outcome was mitigated as well by a deal between the Americans and the Russians, which led to the destruction of a lot of Syria's weapon stocks, but other weapons, sorry, chemical weapon stocks, should I add. Other chemical weapon stocks were held back in secret and then used again. But that was a really, that was the, the high point at which the West was most likely to intervene and it didn't. And you can argue the benefit of that both ways as either it was a lost moment and a lost opportunity and bad things happened as a result, or it would have been very difficult to achieve and Western intervention hasn't gone very well anywhere else in recent times. It's one of those things which is still uh, picked over a lot now that, that the the relationship between David Cameron and Ed Miliband and the Labour Party quite late in the day deciding to vote against that intervention. Given that you know you know Syria better than, than most, do you think it would have made any difference in the long term? Would we still be where we are today if in that sort of sliding doors moment if Parliament had voted for that intervention? It's a very difficult call to make. Um, I mean, I think certainly the Labour Party do have quite a lot of soul-searching to do with this. Take it back to 2003. By and large, it is the public perception in Britain of having been lied to in the reasonings for invading Iraq in 2003 over the supposed weapons of mass destruction held by Saddam Hussein, which ultimately transpired that he didn't have, that has 
percolated into public consciousness very, very deeply now, to the extent that people are very unwilling, and certainly were in 2013, to entertain any concept of intervening in another Middle Eastern country over the supposed use of chemical weapons, another weapon of mass destruction, even though, in this case, chemical weapons had been used, had already been used on multiple occasions in Syria that year, and had been used in over 300 verified incidents by the regime ever since. So the original bedrock of public suspicion and, and dislike of the thought of intervention does really go back to 2003 and something a Labour government did then. And Ed Miliband's decision not to, not to support further intervention, or, or sorry, an intervention in Syria, it is a milestone moment. But look at what happened in Iraq, look at what happened in Afghanistan, look at what happened in Libya. It's hardly like our intervention history uh, is it, a good one in recent times. Uh, but it's very difficult. You look at what's happened in Syria now, you've got Russia absolutely is responsible for the survival of the Syrian regime. Uh, ISIS came about very much as a result of Assad's own actions, his barbarity against his own people, and his releasing from prison of, of thousands of jihadis uh, who he wanted to go back to the revolution and, and sow the kind of Islamist brand into it to give the revolution a bad name. It's quite a conscious manipulation on his part. And you've got the, the chemical genie out of the bottle. I mean, chemical weapons have been used hundreds of times in Syria. So it's hardly like the position we're in now is anything other than awful. Would it be less or more awful had we intervened then? It's very difficult to say. Now, obviously, during your uh, time as a correspondent for The Times, you've reported in Syria an awful lot. And it was, what, six, eight months after that vote that you were in Syria and, uh, and you yourself were, were kidnapped, weren't you? Yeah, uh, May 2014, uh, May 2014 seems a long time ago now. Yeah, which was utterly, um, indicative of how badly things were going and that I was with the Times photographer Jack Hill and my Syrian staff. We were abducted by an Islamist group that was commanded by a guy we knew and had known for a couple of years as well. Very classic sort of contact one has in war that, uh, you know, we were, were going back to his area to follow up on a story and ended up getting abducted by his group, who a couple of years before would certainly not have abducted us. The calculus was changing amongst all sorts of rebel groups at the time. At the beginning of the, the revolution, they saw Western journalists as potential agents of change, just as they had been in Libya. They looked at the Libyan example and thought, well, look, journalists went there, highlighted what Gaddafi was doing, and ultimately there was a Western intervention, and Gaddafi was deposed. Perhaps Western journalists will same, have the same beneficial effect for the Syrian revolution. But after a couple of years, when all they saw instead was excoriating suffering of Syrian people, Western journalists turning up repeatedly, dutifully recording it all, and then leaving, knowing that chances of Western intervention got less and less, so public mood in Syria against us changed. It altered. It no longer saw us as potential benefactors and instead saw us as the epitome, perhaps, of Western cynicism, turning up to record extreme suffering and leaving, knowing that nothing would change. And with that mood, so they began to see us more as a potential asset in war deals and whereby if they abducted, kidnapped Western journalists and sold them to ISIS, there would be more value in either literally in terms of money uh, or strategic impact through through having hostages. So that was how the whole calculus changed. And that was what we, we felt, ran foul of in May 2014. It was, Luckily, before a deal could go through that ended up with us being sold on to ISIS, uh, there had been an extremely violent and rather bold escape attempt, which was partially successful in that my fixer, whom we undoubtedly own our lives to, managed to escape and raise the alarm. And in a very confused and violent escape that went on around that, Jack Hill was recaptured and, and beaten and I was recaptured and, and shot. And uh, yeah, all, it, was a, it was a very violent and bloody day, which ended up with us being seized by another group and uh, handed over on the Turkish border. And not least because it was only a few months later that James Foley, an American journalist also covering the Syrian conflict, was 
was uh, kidnapped and beheaded and became one of the most high-profile uh, journalists to have lost their life in that situation. And, um, and and as is ever the way in the 21st century, all played out on, on YouTube as well. What impact did all of that have on your willingness to go into Syria to report on these things that, you know, you want to shine the light in places where into the darkness, but equally, you know, you don't want to put your own uh, life on the line. What difference has, has this made to the nature of war reporting? Well, there are two aspects to that. I was that there was personal, my personal aspect, uh, and my professional perspective. The yeah. word execution suggests some sort of legal process. Uh, it, this wasn't execution; it was murder. So, personally, you know, it had been a pretty bad summer for me. I'd been shot twice in the ankle at very close range. It was weeks until I could walk again, anyway, and I was appalled at the realization that really conventional journalism in rebel-held areas in northern Syria, which is where I've been kid kidnapped, was less and less possible. We know that James and John had already been kidnapped, in, uh, James and John Cantley, back in November 2012, and other journalists have been kidnapped since, four French, four Spanish, a Danish journalist, and others too. It, it was always very dangerous working there. It's the only place in the world I've likened to walking over an ice floe as you hear it crack. Um, but then that day in August, August the 19th, when James Foley, who I knew, he was a friend of mine, was beheaded uh, and it was broadcast on YouTube. And he was just the first, may I add, that at the time Islamic State had 22 or, or, or in the run up to James's killing had had about, at the peak, 22 Western hostages of whom about 11 were journalists. All the Europeans were released for ransom and all the British and Americans were beheaded except for John Cantley, whose whereabouts are still un, uh, unknown. Now, the impact of that was to confirm that it was next to impossible for Western journalists to work in northern Syria, either because ISIS or their affiliated groups would hunt you, find you, and if you're American or British, they would kill you, or because groups who are fighting against ISIS would no longer want you around anymore, I would be equally prepared, pre prepared to abduct you and potentially sell you over to ISIS later. So it really confirmed, James's filling, killing confirmed how difficult it was for conventional journalism to carry on existing in that way, or for foreign correspondents, what I'm trying to say is for foreign correspondents to travel on and work in, in Syria. What, what I'd like to say happened, it wasn't just a matter that journalists could no longer report in northern Syria, because something else very interesting happened. Of course, every now and then, exceptionally, a conventional style field reporter would get in. But what happened since, which is really interesting, is the development of OSINT, which is the, how we refer to open source intelligence, an investigative site such as Bellingcat or Air Wars or even the Syrian Archive. This vast outpouring of images, video clips and data, which were uploaded usually on social media sites by Syrian activists. These images were uploaded by activists in Syria in such quantity, in quantities that were unrivaled anywhere else. In Iraq, the civil society and activism scene was never quite as vibrant as it was in Syria. And in Libya, it was a bit slower. Now, just to give you some sense of how much footage has been uploaded on social media sites by Syrian activists... There's a, uh, an organisation called the Syrian Archive, which is basically a documentation archive centre. As of last week, it had 1,773,000 videos uploaded into its archive banks from the Syrian war. That's more video archives, more minutes of video archives than the war has actually lasted in, wow. in real time. Uh, now, they've been secured there as a documentary uh, as documentary evidence, either potentially one day for, for future future trials, or if nothing least, as a historical archive of the war. But so you've got this vast amount of material emerging. Then what you had was these OSINT sites, these open source intelligence sites, where you had specialist investigative journalists who would focus down on specific places where this material was emerging from and conducting almost forensic investigations into incidents that had happened, very often pertaining to the use of chemical weapons or civilian harm. Not always conducted by the regime or Islamic State, my ad. It could as well be coalition aircraft bombing out neighbourhoods in Raqqa. And 
So the vast amount of data emerging from activists in the field, Syrian activists, when analysed by specialist journalists in these OSINT sites, could start nailing down truth in Syria in a way that more traditional types of reporting previously hadn't done. And very often, for example, in the uh, Khan Sheikhoun uh, nerve agent attack of 2017, which is one conducted by the regime, or the Duma chlor chlorine attack of 2018, these were attacks where there was all sorts of claim and counterclaims of who did the attacks. And these OSINT sites managed to prove irrevocably that both attacks had been done by the regime by looking at where the weapon systems had fallen, looking at pictures of weapon uh, fragments, looking at, uh, at footage of launch sites, geolocating imagery, and proving, you know, absolutely irreversibly that it was, in these cases, uh, President Assad's forces that were responsible. So it was a really interesting parallel evolution. Um, as field reporters kind of withdrew or forced out of northern Syria, so, you know, OSINT sites, open source intelligence sites, grew in their own journalistic relevance as well. Uh, and it was a parallel evolution. It wasn't that OSINT came about because James was murdered. Uh, it was a parallel evolution. But um, it is amazing quite how much, in no other conflict, has such amount of footage come out from a war zone as from the Syrian war. It's incredible. And like you said, it gives a, it gives a, a different perspective of just one person going into a, an area and then trying to work out for themselves what's been going on. That sort of cross-check of uh, being able to use that footage is incredible. Uh, the one thing I wanted to ask you, you were talking about how dangerous uh, northern Syria became. It didn't stop you going there. Uh, and not only that, but, but landing probably the story that you're best known for in that you found Shamima Begum, the former London schoolgirl turned ISIS bride. Uh, who'd fled uh, her home in Britain uh, to join uh, Islamic State. I mean, I suppose my first obvious question, but that, knowing how, how, how do you go about finding her? There's a few things there, Matt. First of all, luckily, despite the fact that I've uh, described how, how the uh, positive effects and implications of open source intelligence sites, field reporters are still absolutely necessary. I mean, and... Uh, Social media footage that's uploaded from somewhere a bomb's gone off in Syria is of no more journalistic value than CCTV footage, uh, a CCTV camera taking footage which isn't verified or analysed. You still need people to, to verify information, to analyse it. And also, OSINT cannot give you real record of, of human emotion in war, which is one of the main factors governing war, uh, and relationships between people and things. Also, OSINT is very good at looking back on events and finding out what happened, but it's not great in investigating and throwing it forward. <clears throat> I, it always, I, bri I mean, I does bridle, and I mean, I think it's important to say this, I bridle at hearing that I'm best known for finding Shamima Begum. I, I, find that, I find that very sad. I don't find it an epithet. I find that having covered really big stories like the genocide in Bosnia at Srebrenica, having broken stories of the use of chemical weapons in Syria... Um, having covered the invasion of Iraq in 2003 or Afghanistan in 2001, it grieves me when I hear, oh, you are best known for finding a girl from Bethnal Green, who largely, as a result of being found by me, is now completely unable ever to come back to, to Britain. So th there's two things there. One, I like to think that in 27 years, I've, I hope, put my shoulder to the wheel on breaking far bigger stories than that of Shamima Begum. However, it may be, in modern times, that is the story I'm most, most judged by. But I find that story a very, very complex and ultimately very sad story as well. It has become a very bipolar debate, the Shamima Begum case. You have got a whole group of society who say, well, look, this is ridiculous. She was only 15. Whatever decision she made, then she should certainly be allowed back to the UK. Then uh, you have got you know, by and large, the authorities say she cannot come back to the UK because we've stripped her citizenship. And if she were to come back, even to have a hearing to try and get her citizenship back, she would be a threat to British society. So she, she can't come back. Her story is very, very complex. Now, it's she is one of a number of women, about 15 or 16 British women who are held in Syrian camps at the moment. These are women who went over to go and live in the Caliphate for a variety of reasons. There are also about 35 children there, their children. These are British children. 
the majority under the age of five years old, who similarly have been blocked from coming back to this country. Then you've got at least nine British men who are held in prisons there. It's not a one-size-fits-all case. There is no doubt that among those women, there's at least one I know of, who is a radical extremist whose own child has been utilised in extremist videos executing people, right? But then at the other end of the scale, you've got women who are very likely trafficked out there. You've got young women who had no choices that they were taken out there as a child and have since matured and crossed the threshold and become adults who now find themselves similarly unable to come back. And then you've got someone like Shamima Begum, where it's very scant and scarce evidence of actual terrorist acts that she did in Syria. But what we do have a lot of evidence that as a 15-year-old, when there are already warnings out to the police that, look, she might be being groomed and she's in danger of going, those warnings were mishandled or ignored. She ends up out there. She ends up being found by me in February 2019, heavily pregnant, having lost two infants, saying, I want to come home. The Times headline at the time is, bring me home. That was a very you know, representative headline of her case. Uh, and as a result of that, as a result of comments she made to me at the time, her citizenship was immediately revoked uh, and she's never managed to get it back. Now, there is no doubt that the comments she made to me in that initial interview included comments that were really unattractive, ill thought through and sometimes repulsive. They're also the comments of a very young woman in a war zone who had just emerged from the sort of kettling experience of Islamic State for four years. Looking at those comments individually, and I've you know spent a lot of time in in wars in which Islamic extremism has, has been involved to some extent or other. I've met a lot of Mujahideen, I meet a lot of people who have been away on jihad, I've met a lot of people who have gone to join jihad or, or, or been involved with it one way or another. I would say my overwhelming impression was that she was not irretrievable and that she was someone who had made a serious decisions when she was 15, which she shouldn't have her citizenship stripped for now. Now, there are various things you say. People say to me, oh, for example, oh, wait a minute, she said that she was unfazed by severed heads. Well, let's look at actually what she did say to me rather than what people think she said to me. And it's all on record because the, the recording of that interview is out in the public domain. She said she saw one severed head in a bin and it didn't faze me. Now, I meet soldiers from armies the world over, young soldiers who come out of war zones and they will make most appalling comments about violence they've witnessed, participated in or seen otherwise in some way, shape or form. And they will be quite boastful about how it didn't affect them. I thought that comment she made to me was not denoting so much extremism but just the crassness of youth in its expressiveness of trying not to be seen to care too much about violence. As for her other things, she said, no regrets. She said she had no regrets. It was part of some quite longer series of sentences she made about, I have come here, I met someone I fell in love with, and I had three children. So what she was trying to say, as I understood it, and I'm pretty sure I was right, because I was sitting with her for a very long time, was... Things have gone horribly wrong in my life. There are things, if I look back on the horrors of the last four years, that were also very good. One can't really judge one's life as a series of regrets or not. That was the inference that I took. However, was she radicalised when she spoke to me? I would say, paradoxically, yes, she was. Just as you would get anybody who had been with Islamic State at that stage for so long, thinking slightly in the mindset of Islamic State and speaking as Islamic State speak. But does that stick as a brand for life? No, usually not. Not sometimes not, but usually not. People start reversing, particularly if they've been bombed, experienced extreme loss and, and horrors and hardship. Most will say, I've had enough of that. I want to go and do something else more positive. Now, of course, it becomes very difficult to actually confirm who does want to lay down that sort of ideology and move on to something more positive and who might still hold out for it and be a threat. But I'm pretty sure in Shamima Begum's case, she is not a threat 
Unfortunately, she became a lightning rod for an awful lot of anger around Islamic State as a whole and as part of a greater emotive response against Islamic State, which is entirely understandable given the amount of terrorist attacks they were. However, not allowing her back to the UK, not allowing her the right to have a hearing over the revocation of her citizenship, or not even allowing for the pathway for her to have a trial, I would argue is undemocratic. It does not solve the overall problem of what to do with British detainees, including British children in Syria. I also think absolutely slam dunk. The court ruling is a racist decision because ultimately what it says is if you are British and you were born in Hampshire of Anglo-Saxon heritage, you will remain British whatever you have done. But if you're British and born in Britain, but you're of Bangladeshi descent, we might, depending on what you've done, strip you of your citizenship and try and send you back to Bangladesh, who's already said they won't have you, and you will become de facto stateless. So I think the court decision around Shamima Begum was not sophisticated. I think it had overt racist consequences. And I don't think it solved any of the problems. I admit it's very complicated selection of cases here. Uh, the worst end of it, you've got some very hardened terrorists out there. I don't think Shamima Begum is one of them. Uh, with, in hindsight, do you wish that you hadn't found her? Good question. For a time, I thought, well, I'm really pleased it was me who found her and not a journalistic pig. I thought I felt very qualified to have found her. I've had, you know, spent now the last 27 years of my life professionally involved in wars, um, working more often alongside Muslim people or in Muslim communities than not in my work life. And with a lot more understanding of what it is that brings young people to wars than your average journalist. I say that from a position, it's not a position of boast, it's a position of fact and of confidence. However, ultimately, I think now it would have made no difference whether an experienced journalist found Shamima Begum or a very inexperienced journalism who had a, a, a sorry, a very inexperienced journalist from a very, um, who came to her case with a, you know, a prejudicial background of like, yeah, she should be left to die in the desert. Because the end result is, no matter how I have tried to explain her case through my journalism in the Times, there has been a disastrous consequence for her. It's been a very toxic case to be involved with. And it has reminded me of the great limitations of journalism. I mean, I've really, really, I've met her four times. I have worked very hard to try and explain the complexity of her case to people. And I don't think it matters how hard I try because I don't think people want to listen. Uh, and that's that, that's a very sad state of affairs. I don't, I have no regrets in finding Shamima Begum. However, it's not something that I'm, it's not an outcome I'm proud of either. It's fascinating. I suppose it goes right to the heart of the fact that you're doing really tough stuff in really difficult uh, places i just want to, to to round off really we're almost back where we started you mentioned everything that you have in your kit bag the one thing you didn't mention is your fishing rod <laughs> matt yeah i do <laughs> fishing in war i do try i love my fishing it takes me uh i'm not you know i'd like to say it's a nice peaceful pastime it's not actually i go fishing to catch fish i'm very obsessive about it and if i don't catch fish i'm often quite grumpy and I would love to say, yeah, relax and appreciate the beauties of the world and all the rest of it. I do a bit, but I'm there to catch fish. And that's what I'm focusing on. Um, if I can, and I've got a long assignment, longer assignment. I try and take fishing all with me. So I have I have caught catfish in the Helmand River. I have caught carp in Saddam Hussein's palaces in Tikrit. Um, I have fished around the place. I've caught trout in Bosnia. Uh, I've caught a disgusting little fish from uh, a river just down down the road from here in Erbil. I do like to fish. Um, however, one's got to be slightly in the right mood for it. And for example, now, sadly, I've got 10 days to cover quite a lot of ground in a rather intense and bleak investigation I'm working on here. And I very much doubt I will have the time to fish. I've left my gear at home. I know where I can get some fishing gear here if I need it. It might not be something that I can achieve this trip. However, I know that when I get back to Devon, where I live, 
in April, the sea trout will just be beginning to run in from the sea to go out some of the rivers there. So I'm hoping that what I miss out on here, I will get when I get home. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.